0: You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and I am coming to you tonight, as every night, from the sunny climes of western Japan, where it is already the 22nd of September 2012, so thank you to all of you once again for tuning in for tonight's edition of the broadcast and what a special edition of the broadcast it is. After a very interesting week we've had here going literally around the globe talking to Michael Vale of stratrisks.com, talking to Vinnie Eastwood over in New Zealand, talking to Matias Rojas in Chile, we have definitely spanned the globe this week. And to bring it on home, we have a very special edition of the broadcast where I am going to introduce to you The newest addition to your info arsenal, the DVD collection from CorbettReport.com. And for those of you who don't know, if you go to CorbettReport.com slash support, or if you just click on the support tab on the homepage of Corbett Report, you can find all of the DVDs that are available for sale through the website. And that includes the 2009 Video Archive and 2010 Video Archive. Those are video DVDs that are playable on any modern video DVD player. And they represent uh, the highlights, the selections, the best of my videos from 2009 and 2010 respectively. There's uh, about an hour and a half of footage on each of those. And then I also have for sale the Data DVD, Volume 1 and Volume 2. And those are everything, every single podcast episode, every interview, every video, every article, all on one Data DVD that's playable on your Mac or PC device. So those are uh, available for sale already right now, and I hope you will check them out if you haven't yet done so. But the latest addition to this series is in my hands right now. If you are watching this on CorbettReport.com slash video, you will see that in my hands is the very first test pressing of The Last Word, the latest DVD from CorbettReport.com, and this is a compilation of uh, videos from my Last Word video series, and this was a series that was popular on YouTube last year. I did seven episodes of this series, so they're all here on this one disc for your viewing pleasure for the first time on a video DVD. So this will play in your video DVD player or in your computer DVD player. And, uh, it represents all, all seven of those episodes that have been viewed collectively hundreds of thousands of times now online so they are definitely a popular series and they all are uh, follow a certain pattern they're all very erudite and eloquent i hope uh, d- d- uh portrayals and and dealing with a certain subject in in great depth so for example we have the last word on overpopulation the last word on terrorism the last word on snake oil the last word on cctv uh, there's, as I say, seven of these on here. So tonight on the program, we're going to be listening to some of the audio of some of these. Uh, if you're watching the video at corporatereport.com slash video, you can see the video of these. And uh, we'll be going through some of them, and we will also, I will be back in the middle of the uh, episode here tonight and at the end to talk more about the DVD, and someone today is going to walk away a winner and get a free copy of this brand new DVD. This will be available for sale on the website tomorrow. That is starting Saturday, and for those of you who are subscribed to the Corbett Report newsletter, you will have your opportunity to buy this at the customary 33% off, uh, That again, just for being a subscriber. People get a certain uh, discount, so we're going to go for uh, 33%, and uh, you're going to get one-third off just for being a subscriber. So if you subscribe and get the newsletter, you can buy your copy that way, or otherwise, it will be 1,300 yen. That's 1,300 Japanese yen, which is equivalent to somewhere in the neighborhood of 15, 16 dollars. Uh, depending where you are and what the exchange rate is. But details of this, again, will be on the support tab of CorbettReport.com. So we're going to take a short breather, and when we come back, we're going to start in on watching some of these episodes of The Last Word. And I will be back later on to talk more about this uh, disc and how you can get your hands on it. But right now, let's take a short break and regroup our thoughts. When we come back, we will be listening to The Last Word on Terrorism. So don't touch that dial. We will be right back after these messages. It don't mean a thing. All you gotta do is swing. Do I 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 It don't mean a thing All you gotta do is sing Do I 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 It makes no difference if it's sweet or hot Just give it everything you've got Oh it don't mean a thing All you gotta do is swing Do I do I do I do I do I do I do it do I Welcome this is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com with the last word on terrorism. In an interview with Bloomberg earlier this month regarding the unfolding political unrest in Egypt, Henry Kissinger made at least one very telling statement. The real problem will be what is the ultimate orientation of Egypt because it is in many respects the key to the region. Breaking it out of the radical camp, was mm-hmm. would what brought about peace with Israel, and brought about support for the anti-terrorist campaign. If they go back to the nationalist orientation of Nasser, then things are going to get very tough. That Kissinger would equate Nasserism with terrorism is particularly galling to those who are even passingly familiar with the history of the region. As is typical with such pronouncements by the mouthpieces of the global elite, the easily demonstrable truth is precisely the opposite of what Kissinger asserts. He just thinks his audience is too historically ignorant to call him on his lie. In 1952, British troops in the Suez Canal area became embroiled in a fight with local police, resulting in the slaughter of 50 Egyptian policemen and the wounding of 100 more. The furious Egyptian public, long-suffering under the reign of King Farouk, a pro-British regent who lived in opulence while his people struggled, organized into riots, and a cadre of Egyptian army officers, calling themselves the Free Officers Movement, overthrew the king and instituted a republic. They were led by Gamal Abdel Nasser Hussein, who became the second president of Egypt in 1956. From the beginning, Nasser was hated and feared by the international oligarchs, who had become used to having a puppet regime in power over the key Suez Canal shipping route. Nasser was nothing like King Farouk. Young, charismatic, and polished, Nasser set about creating a modern, secular Egyptian state that was to become the template for a new movement, pan-Arab nationalism, that threatened the status quo of Western imperial dominance over the region. Forgoing the royal lifestyle of Egyptian leaders' past, Nasser redirected the state's resources into building up housing, education, and health services for the Egyptian people. An adherent to neutralism in the non-aligned movement, Nasser assured the eternal enmity of the imperial powers and the eternal love of the Arab people by nationalizing the Suez Canal in 1956. For the first time, the Egyptian people would have control over their most strategic national asset. Naturally, the prospect of a defiant, viable, secular Arab nationalist state as a model for other Arab nations to follow was anathema to British-U.S.-Israeli interests, and plans to derail Nasser were hatched before he even became president. Among these plans was the now-infamous Lavon Affair, an Israeli military intelligence plot to plant bombs throughout Egypt in order to blame on nationalists, communists, Muslims, or unspecified malcontents in order to justify continued British occupation of the Suez Canal Zone. The Israeli military intelligence cell, codenamed Unit 131 and led by Colonel Avram Dar, firebombed a post office in Alexandria and planted bombs in two U.S. information agency libraries and a British-owned theater in Cairo. When the outrageous operation was foiled and one of the bombers was apprehended in the act, the truth was exposed. Israeli intelligence was using false flag terrorism to manipulate public opinion and achieve their desired result, the political destabilization that would induce Britain to maintain their military control over the area. The easily documented truth, then, is precisely the opposite of Kissinger's fact-free assertion. Nasser was not the cause of terrorism in Egypt, but the target of it. But why would someone like Kissinger, someone whose very reputation depends upon his historical knowledge and political acumen, tell such a transparent lie? The answer is simple. When Kissinger uses the word terrorism, he is not using it as a descriptive term about acts of political violence and bloodshed. He is using the word itself as a political weapon. You see, to Kissinger and the other adherents of the globalist ideology, terrorism is simply a word for any act that threatens the agenda of the globalists. In this twisted worldview, those who believe that national autonomy is more important than the needs of international finance capital are terrorists. Those who are opposed to the free trade agreements that have offshored the manufacturing base of the First World and consigned the developing world to squalor are terrorists. Those who uphold the principle that the people are the arbiters of their own lives and that these lives should not be subject to the whims of multinational corporations are terrorists. That Nasser was so vehemently and treacherously opposed by the globalists with a vested interests in stopping a stable, secure Arab state is not surprising, nor is it by any means the only example of this phenomenon. On the contrary, the 20th century is littered with such examples. In 1951, Mohammad Mossadegh, the democratically elected leader of Iran, nationalized British petroleum interests in the country. Two years later, a CIA team led by Kermit Roosevelt, the president's grandson, provocateur-funded and fomented a coup d'etat against Mossadegh, a coup that installed the autocratic Shah as leader and paved the way for Savak security forces to begin a reign of terror and torture. To the globalists, however, the Shah was the good guy, and Mossadegh had been the terrorist. In 1952, Jacobo Arbenz, the democratically elected leader of Guatemala, began a series of land reforms that expropriated holdings of the United Fruit Company. In 1953, the CIA began training rebels, recruiting pilots, and setting up communications to agitate a coup. The following year, Arbenz was overthrown, beginning decades of military dictatorship and civil strife. In the eyes of the globalists, though, Arbenz was the terrorist. In 1970, Salvador Allende won the Chilean elections against the U.S.-backed and financed Jorge Alessandri when he began nationalizing U.S. copper firms and large industries, the U.S. backed a coup that ended in Allende's death and the beginning of the brutal reign of General Augusto Pinochet. But in the twisted worldview of the globalists, it was not Pinochet who was the terrorist, but Allende. Numerous other examples exist, but the pattern is obvious and speaks for itself. Terrorism is a word for anything or anyone opposed to the interests of international capital. The so-called war on terror has never been about stopping a bunch of Islamic fundamentalists. If the U.S. had wanted that, they would have supported Nasser, not undermined him. They would have encouraged Mossadegh, not overthrown him. If the U.S. had been scared of the scourge of radical Islam, they would not have funded it in Afghanistan in the 1980s. They would not have protected and fostered and funded Muhammad Junaid Babar and Harun Rashid Aswat and Luai al Saka and Khalid al-Maidhar, and Nawaf al-Hazmi, and Anwar al alaki and all of the other patsies, stooges, informants, and operatives that have been paraded in front of the cameras just long enough to identify them as the faces of evil, but never long enough for anyone to actually investigate their backgrounds. Because in each and every case, the big, fabulous terror plots always tie back to the U.S.-British-Israeli intelligence complex and its tentacles around the world. No, terrorism is only tangentially related to these radical Muslims, and only insofar as they are funded, trained, and enabled by their terrorist overlords in the corridors of Langley, Virginia. Proof of this simple truth has been amply provided time and again since the inception of this mythical war on terror. In the wake of mass popular protest against the globalist agenda in Seattle in 99, in Washington and Montreal in 2000, and in Genoa in 2001, the global power elite were desperate for a way to defuse and derail their opposition. In the wake of 9 11, they had their chance. Italian plutocrat and globalist stooge Silvio Berlusconi wasted no time in attempting to use the event to blame the anti globalization movement. There is a singular coincidence between this action and the anti globalization movement that has manifested itself for a year now, he said at the time. Other arms and organs of the elite power structure have been no less strident, if somewhat more subtle in using the terror paradigm to stigmatize any and all opposition to their agenda. In 2005, the Rand Corporation released a report on homegrown terror threats in which they identified the terror threat not as one of radicalized Muslims driven by religious fervor, but protesters and activists driven by opposition to the ideals of the globalists. Developing imperatives stemming from anti-globalization do appear to be providing a radical domestic context for galvanizing the militancy of both the far-right as well as those driven by more specific extremist environmental agendas. Since then, the entire process of demonizing political opponents through the use of the word weapon terrorist has descended into the most absurd form of political farce, with a flurry of reports from the Missouri Information Analysis Center to the state government of Virginia to the Texas Department of Public Safety claiming increasingly ridiculous indicators of terrorism from buying baby formula to wearing blue jeans to carrying a driver's license. All of this terror hysteria that the public has been force-fed over the past decade would be utterly incomprehensible if we were to understand terrorist to mean what you and I and John Q. Public believe it means. But it does not. You see, in our modern world, terrorism is not terrorism. It does not describe a tactic. It is not about violence and bloodshed, suicide bombers, or Allah Akbar. It is not a word, it is a weapon, a weapon aimed at those who disagree with the aims of Heinz Kissinger and all of his Bilderberg CFR trilateralist, uh, trilateralist ilk, those who wish for the supremacy of a small, rich elite of financiers and multinational monopoly capital thugs. Terrorism is not a word, not a concept, it is a weapon that is aimed at you and me. And that, in the final equation, is our opportunity. We can point out that terrorism is a word and it does describe the actions of the bloodthirsty elite who kill and maim the innocent, who start wars or overthrow governments or incite violence to achieve their aims. And in that simple action, the reclaiming of the word terrorism to to identify the globalist kingpins who have been puppeteering international politics for generation after generation, we can disarm Kissinger and all the other pimps of the war on terror hysteria. For the Corbett Report in Western Japan, I am James Corbett. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio. Here we are on this Friday night edition of the broadcast. We are talking about my brand new DVD, The Last Word. And what we just heard there before the break was The Last Word on Terrorism, which once again is available on YouTube also available on this brand new DVD but I would like to stress that all of these last word uh, commentaries are available completely for free online so you are not obligated to buy anything it is 100% free and freely available but all of this media really is brought to you by you guys out there so I can't do it without your support and I truly do appreciate everyone who buys a DVD and or subscribes to my newsletter so once again uh, the YouTube versions of all of these will be uh, uh, up there they're online for free, and also they all contain the transcript along with links to all sources cited. So there's a uh, there's just a ton of information that I hope is in each and every single one of these uh, episodes, and I hope they can be digested uh, individually. And certainly some of them are contentious. Some of them go uh, very much against what uh, some people out there think. It's not my intention to be uh, 100% in alignment with everyone out there and to just say mealy mouthed platitudes that everyone agrees with. So, for example, I know I get a lot of kickback on the last word on overpopulation, where I attack the overpopulation myth and uh, the the Malthusian uh, hyperventilation, which I've seen, unfortunately, parroted by so many, even in the alternative media, I also the last word on utopia has had a lot of feedback from the zeitgeistian and venus projectians out there who will vociferously defend their their ideas uh, from any perceived attack and the funniest thing about that entire uh, that entire uh, episode of the the last word is that the only mention of the the venus project or zeitgeist anywhere on there is just some visuals on the screen and i wonder if i hadn't put them on if any zeitgeistians would have even objected to it but anyway um, so it's certainly not meant to be just uh, mealy mouth platitudes and it's not meant to be popular populist it's meant to really challenge people and get them thinking and the funniest part about all of this i guess is that the entire last word series was actually in a way inspired, well, it was inspired by a couple of things, but one of them was the old uh, special comments that uh, Keith Olbermann used to have back when he was on MSNBC during the Bush regime. And he used to have some some of his uh, special comments were, absolutely incredible, very, very cutting, very incisive, very articulate, very well-documented uh, lambastings of the Bush regime and the various abuses that it was involved in, and I took a lot of heart from those. There were, there were some that were just so extremely well-written, well-presented that I uh, I really enjoyed a lot of them. And it was with great dismay and great concern that I saw that as soon as Obama arrived on the scene to become the political savior for everyone, the entire thing changed. And I remember specifically the uh, the eight years of Bush in eight minutes or whatever that was called uh, that Olbermann did that was so well done and so hard hitting and exposed so many of the abuses of the Bush regime. And then at the very end, he said that the answer to all of this was Hope. Hope and change in saya. So that was the point which really sickened me and made me realize just how bought and paid for the whole system was if any more proof was needed. So uh, so certainly we can take pieces like that from the, uh, the mainstream media that are well done but will only ever talk about one side of the coin and we can apply it to real issues and that's exactly what I've attempted to do with this last word series. I did mention there were at least two sources for this idea. The other one was a YouTube video that I found once online somewhere. I'll probably never find it again. I don't remember what it was called. I don't even remember what specifically the person was talking about, but it was just six or seven minutes of one person delivering a monologue that was extremely articulate, very erudite, erudite, and uh, did not seem to me that it was pandering to any audience. It was just a very, very, very hard-hitting and very well-thought-out monologue and I thought, well, I can, I can do something like that, surely. So I've put together mine own. And here they are, the Last Word series. And once again, this is available on DVD, and you can go and purchase this from the Corbett Report website starting this weekend. I hope you will do so. I hope you will check it out. And if you like this work, please support it, because the alternative media is brought to you by you. But once again, I would like to reiterate, it is all freely available online, so please check that out, and uh, you can find it all on my website. And I did mention that uh, this is the part of a series that I did last year. I did six or seven episodes, and this year, as you may have noticed, I've already released a new uh, video called The Last Word on Voting that is talking about uh, how to go beyond politics. It's an anarchist rant, and it is, again, promo- provoking a lot of uh, discussion online, and that's a good thing, I think. It's, again, another contentious issue. And this is part of a projected another six or seven or eight, uh, who knows how many episodes I'm going to do this year. So th- I'm hoping to do the- make this an annual series where I do uh, just a spurt of uh, several in a few weeks' time and get Get them out there. So I hope that you again you will uh, take a look at that new uh, video, The Last Word on Voting. And once again, all of these are available from CorbettReport.com. So after the break, we're going to uh, t- take a listen to two consecutive uh, shorter pieces. One is The Last Word on Snake Oil, talking about William Avery Rockefeller, the father of John D. Rockefeller, the founder of the Rockefeller dynasty, and the past of his that i'm sure many people don't know about it's a very fascinating past we're also going to be listening to the last word on uh let me check my notes here which one are we going to uh to listen to the the last word on on independence yes that's right so one that came out on independence day of last year that I thought was particularly well done if I do say so myself. So we're going to be listening to that one as well. And then I'll be back at the end of tonight's episode to tell you how you can get, how you can potentially win a free copy of this last word on, uh, last word DVD. So stay tuned right there. We'll be right back after these messages. Welcome. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com with the last word on snake oil. The image of the traveling snake oil salesman of 19th century America is by now a familiar trope. It's the image of the heartless huckster who preys upon the trust of the general public to swindle them out of their hard-earned savings. With a bottle of useless tonic and the help of a plant in the audience, the snake oil salesman made a living out of lies and deceit. In these respects, William Levingston was your average snake oil salesman. He used a made-up title, billing himself as Dr. Bill Levingston's celebrated cancer specialist, despite being neither a doctor, nor celebrated, nor a cancer specialist. He was an inveterate cheat and liar, having abandoned his first wife and their six children to start a bigamous marriage in Canada at the same time as he fathered two more children by a third woman. And, like every snake oil salesman, he had a cure-all tonic to hawk. He called it rock oil and charged $25 a bottle for it, equivalent at the time to two months' salary for the average American worker. Claiming it could cure all but the most terminal cancers, there were always desperate souls in every town who could be duped into buying a bottle. As near as anyone can tell, rock rock oil was in fact just a mixture of laxative and petroleum and had no effect whatsoever on the cancer of the poor townsfolk he conned into buying it. But Dr. Bill didn't have to worry about the consequences when his customers discovered they'd been had. He never stayed in any one place for very long. Yes, in almost every respect, William Levingston was your run-of-the-mill snake-oil huckster, someone who had no compunction about preying on the weak and the innocent in his pursuit of wealth and power. There was one thing that set him apart, however. His name was not, in fact, Levingston. That was an identity he had assumed after being indicted for raping a girl in Cayuga in 1849. His actual name was William Avery Rockefeller, and he was the father of John D. Rockefeller, founder of the infamous Rockefeller dynasty. The official histories of the Rockefeller family, many commissioned or approved by the Rockefellers themselves, or produced by public television stations owned and managed by family members, downplay the significance of the dynasty's snake oil lineage. John Dee, they claim, was the opposite of his father. Pious and industrious, where his father had been wayward and lazy. Philanthropic and generous, where his father had been selfish and greedy. In reality, the apple didn't fall far from the tree, and John Dee learnt a lot from his father. Devil Bill, as the celebrated Dr. Bill Lovingston was also known, once bragged that, I cheat my boys every chance I get. I want to make them sharp. The young Rockefeller learned his lesson well, and by all accounts, John was smart, shrewd, and possessed of a maturity beyond his years. From his father's example, he learned how to lie, how to cheat, and how to get away with it, traits that served him well as he rose to become one of the richest men the world has ever known. Like his father, John Davison Rockefeller made his fortune by hawking another type of snake oil. In the early 1860s, he built an oil refinery with some business partners in Cleveland. By 1880, Standard Oil was refining 90% of the oil in America, rising on the back of John Dee's deceit backstabbing, and secret deals with the railroad tycoons. With the acute business acumen of a born-and-bred snake oil salesman, Rockefeller became unimaginably wealthy by exerting ruthless control over the oil industry. In those early days, however, oil was refined mainly into kerosene for lighting fuel. It was ubiquitous and a profitable industry to monopolize, but it was hardly central to American society. Indeed, the invention of the light bulb in 1878 and its introduction to American homes threatened the industry itself. It was only the invention and mass production of the horseless carriage powered by an internal combustion engine running on gasoline that made oil into the backbone of American society and the snake oil of the 20th century. In many ways, the United in the USA was still more an ideal than a reality at the dawn of the 20th century. The disparate states were separated by huge distances, and cross-country travel was still a long and arduous proposition. With the railroad, the only reasonable option for traversing the vast expanses of the prairies in a reasonable time, the American frontier was built up around the railroads. By the same token, the invention and widespread adoption of the horseless carriage meant that modern America would be built up around the automobile, and it was the 20th century snake oil salesmen like the Rockefellers who stood to profit from it. Now, it would be difficult to imagine an industrialized nation without oil. We drive cars burning fuels derived from oil, running on tires derived from oil, to go to the store to buy plastic goods derived from oil in plastic packaging derived from oil. Big Pharma uses it as a basis for many pharmaceuticals. Big agri uses it for fertilizers. Big Food uses it for additives. What is never thoroughly explored in the official histories and mainstream press, however, are the ways that viable alternatives to oil have been systematically suppressed by the snake oil salesmen and their lackeys in the positions of political power that have long since been bought and paid for through the Washington lobbyists. In 1925, Henry Ford told the New York Times, The fuel of the future is going to come from fruit like that sumac out by the road, or from apples, weeds, sawdust, almost anything. There is fuel in every bit of vegetable matter that can be fermented. This was not merely a pipe dream. The original Model T could run on either ethanol or gasoline. In 1941, Ford produced a vehicle made of cellulose fibers derived from hemp, which ran on hemp ethanol. The dream of an agrarian revival and an alternative to petroleum, however, was soon squelched by the snake oil salesmen, and gasoline became the de facto standard, preserving the mind-boggling fortunes of the oil barons. Of course, to ensure that cars became kings of the road, something had to be done about the existing public transportation infrastructure in many American cities. A consortium of GM... Firestone Tire and Phillips Petroleum, with Rockefeller's Standard Oil of California at the helm, formed a joint company to buy up and dismantle the functioning trolley systems of 45 cities, including New York, Detroit, St. Louis, and Los Angeles. Similarly, the dream of the electric car was dashed upon the shores of the petroleum industry and the vast resources it was able to expend in suppressing its competition. At the turn of the 20th century, it seemed much more likely that electric cars would be the wave of the future. They accounted for 28% of the cars in the United States in 1900. They required no gear shifting or hand cranking and had none of the vibration, smell, or noise associated with gasoline-powered cars, and they were relatively affordable. The greater range of gas-powered cars, the discovery of cheap and abundant Texas crude, and the mass production of combustion engine vehicles, however, conspired to make sure that the electric car and the independence from the oil industry that it afforded would never become the standard. Experiments promising to find revolutionary alternative energy sources, too, have been ridiculed or ignored or bought off by the military and suppressed. Because the current paradigm of a society structured around the use of a resource that is difficult to acquire is exactly what is needed to keep the people hooked on the system itself. That is the sinister turn of the modern snake oil salesmen. They not only try to sell us their phony cures for our cancers, they give us the cancer itself itself the cancer of complete dependence on their system, their resources, their corporations. This is the trick by which John D. and the Rockefeller dynasty and all of their ilk have transformed themselves from two-bit peddlers of phony cure-alls to multi-trillionaire controllers of our economic reality. William Avery Rockefeller would no doubt approve of the stain his legacy has left on our society. But there is something that the modern-day snake oil peddlers, the banksters and the oilmen and the multinationals and the globalists and their lackeys in political power, live in constant fear of. It is the same fear that has gripped the heart of every snake oil salesman, the fear that the public will realize that their tonic is useless and their whole show is just a stage act, and the people run them out of town. For the Corbett Report in Western Japan, I am James Corbett. Welcome. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com with the last word on independence. In the course of human events, nothing has been more dangerous to the ruling elite than the concept of human liberty. Not the documents that have encapsulated that idea or charted its development. Not the Magna Carta. Not the Declaration of Independence. Not the Emancipation Proclamation. Nor any of the other pieces of paper upon which the idea of liberty has been set down. But the idea itself. That humans are born equal that there are inalienable rights, that no self-proclaimed authority is ever justified in attempting to usurp under whatever pretense, that our life, our liberty, and our property are inviolable, and that it is our duty to resist those who seek to violate them. These are the truths that we hold to be self-evident here, now, in the 21st century, blessed as we are to stand on the shoulders of the philosophical giants who had the vision of foresight to realize that tyranny is not the natural state of humanity and the courage of their convictions to fight and die for those beliefs. This idea has been dangerous to those who seek to dominate others precisely because it is an idea, a fire in the minds of men, that once loosed upon the world can never be put out. It cannot be imprisoned, stabbed, shot, or put under the guillotine, although those who have furthered the cause of liberty have all too often been subjected to these punishments. The documents upon which it is inscribed can be ignored, revised, or destroyed altogether, but the idea itself is as immutable as the inalienable rights it upholds. The idea of liberty is dangerous precisely because it is permanent, indestructible, and ultimately irrepressible. Not that the the tyrants haven't tried, of course. For as long as there have been ordinary men and women, lowly peasants and humble laborers willing to stand up to the lords and ladies, the kings and queens and noblemen of all stripes who would presume to control them, there have been those who have tried to repress them. In 73 BC... Spartacus led a slave rebellion known as the Third Servile War against the Roman Republic. Using nothing more than kitchen implements, he led a band of 70 men in a plot to escape their bondage in Capua. They seized supplies from some wagons full of gladiatorial weapons and armor, plundered the area, and escaped to Mount Vesuvius, all the while recruiting other slaves to join them in their uprising. Defeating wave after wave of militia sent to suppress them, the Spartacan Rebellion grew to 70,000 men. Beset by eight legions of Roman troops under the command of the feared Marcus Crassus, Spartacus made a valiant last stand at Brundusium and was decimated by the disciplined, well-armed Roman forces. Spartacus died on the battlefield with his men, and those that survived were captured and crucified by Crassus legions. In the late 14th century, King Richard II of England levied a deeply unpopular poll tax on the poor British serfs, already living in abject poverty under English feudalism. When a tax collector tried to extract the poll tax from the village of Fobbing, the villagers refused to pay, and he was sent away empty-handed. When a chief justice was sent to investigate the incident, he was attacked. Soon the revolt had spread, and an armed uprising began to march on London. They stormed the Tower of London, killing the nobles ensconced there, including the Lord Chancellor and the Lord Treasurer. Desperate to contain the rebellion, King Richard agreed to negotiations with the rebel leader, Watt Tyler. During the negotiations, Tyler was killed. King Richard lied to the crowds, telling them that Tyler had in fact been knighted and that the king had accepted his demands. The crowds were told to march to St. John's Fields, where they would be reunited with their leader, but they marched into a trap, and the revolt was suppressed. Having killed the rebel leaders, Richard withdrew his concessions. In 1869, the newly established Government of Canada negotiated the purchase of Rupert's Land from the Hudson's Bay Company and appointed an English-speaking governor to rule over the French-speaking, Métis-dominated region. Louis Riel led an uprising of Métis known as the Red River Rebellion that led to a provisional government and the establishment of the province of Manitoba. As a condition of the entry of Manitoba into Confederation, the Riel-led Rebellion drafted a list of rights for the people of the territory that established their right to their own legislature, the right to elect their own sheriffs, magistrates, constables, and other officials, the right to a full representation in the Canadian Parliament, and the right to all privileges and customs at the time of the transfer. Riel was banished to the U.S. for his part in what the government of Canada branded a treasonous act, and when he returned to lead a new rebellion in the 1880s, he was eventually captured and hung by the Canadian government. The annals of history suffer from no shortage of martyrs in the pursuit of human liberty. They have come from every race, every creed, every corner of the globe, and every walk of life. But they have all been united in a passion for freedom and a pursuit for those ideals which are anathema to the tyrants. That we are all equal, and that no official in whatever office, dressed in whatever uniform, or claiming to speak with whatever authority, can take away our right to life, liberty, or property. But the tyrants of the 21st century are not stupid and it cannot be said that they suffer from the same delusions of their ideological forefathers that the idea of human liberty can be suppressed by the barrel of a gun. Certainly there still are repressive regimes all throughout the world that do use the infrastructure of the police state to encroach further and further upon the rights of the people. But more insidious by far are the ways that modern information warfare are used to convince people that their slavery is in fact their freedom that the answer to the problems created by centralized forms of control is in fact even further centralization of control, and that our independence finds its fullest expression in our dependence on these systems of control. In our modern context, we have watched as the world has been brought to the brink of economic collapse by the concerted attempts to subsume local sovereignty into regional, regional, supranational governments and organizations. We've witnessed the destruction of national economies by groups of political pirates who have squandered away their own country's finances for their personal enrichment, and then run to the IMF for the privilege of selling their country into debt bondage to the financiers and vulture capitalists who are all too willing to buy up national infrastructure for pennies on the euro. We have watched as our so-called leaders have led us into the war after war without seeking declarations of war from our elected representatives but based on ill-defined mandates of international bodies that we have not created, and in which we have no say, like the UN and NATO. And in each case where these activities have left us more impoverished and more enslaved than before, we are told that the answer is to allow these same leaders and authorities even more power over our lives. The Europeans are arguing that the answer to the collapse of the euro is to strengthen the financial institution of the EU, including the creation of a European finance ministry with the power to intervene in the economies of individual member states. The Europeans are being told that their further dependence on the EU is the only way to save them from the calamity that their dependence on the EU has gotten them into. Residents of the NATO member states are being told that in order to ensure the freedom of the Libyan people, they must commit their forces to the bombardment of those very same people at the behest of the UN Security Council. France has now been confirmed to be directly arming the so-called rebels in Libya, in direct contradiction to the Security Council resolution they claim to be enforcing. But that fact goes unnoticed in the establishment media, and the war continues against the wishes of the vast majority of the people. Those who are seeking to once again claim their independence from the system and to stake out for themselves those rights that our forefathers and foremothers fought and died for are now being dubbed extremists and socially demonized for their refusal to go along with their own enslavement. Those who grow their own gardens to free themselves from dependence on the big multinational food conglomerates are portrayed as wackos. Those who invest in precious metals against the devaluation of the debt-based, fractional reserve derivative-backed, central bank-issued funny money that serves as the basis of our system of economic dependence are deemed kooks. Those who refuse to recognize the authority of the government to impose limits on their inalienable human rights to freedom from unlawful searches and seizures, and even freedom from violation of their own bodies, are branded dangerous subversives. And now... As another Independence Day comes and goes in the United States of America, and as we watch the political puppets of all stripes line up to pay lip service to the ideals of human freedom, it's time once again for the people the world over to ask themselves if they will stand with the ideals enshrined by Thomas Jefferson in the Declaration of Independence in 1776 that... When a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty, to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Because in reality, our liberty is not a vague concept that we can reaffirm on occasion as it suits us. It is a choice that we make each and every day to live in independence or in slavery. Every day is Independence Day. For the Corbett Report in Western Japan, I am James Corbett. Alright friends, welcome back to the program. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio. And you have been listening to this Friday Night Highlight edition of the broadcast where we've been talking about my new DVD, The Last Word. Once again, that is available for purchase or will be very shortly on the Corbett Report website. So I hope you'll check it out this weekend, corbettreportcom slash support. You can get your hands on this DVD. It's 1,300 Japanese yen, and that includes shipping anywhere in the world. So I hope it's a good value, and I hope that you will support this alternative media so you can make it continue to happen in the future. And I once again, I do genuinely appreciate your support. I'd also like to plug the subscriber newsletter and uh, to let people know that if you sign up, as many people have this week, and once again, thank you all for signing up for the newsletter this week. If you sign up, you will get a weekly newsletter that includes my weekly International Forecaster editorial. It also includes recommended reading and viewing. It includes a discount on all DVDs sold through the Corporate Report website. And it it includes once a month, uh, at the beginning of each month, there is a subscriber-only video. So the subscribers get to see a video, usually of myself, in a fireside chat or something more more intimate, more about my personal uh, life and things that are going on and uh, thoughts that I'm having. So if you are interested in that and or if you just want to support the work, I know there are a lot of people who are subscribed who don't necessarily read the newsletter, but if you do want to support the work, once again, you can find that at CorbettReport.com support, And finally, uh, of course, the most important thing that you can do out there to support me is not monetary at all. It is simply helping to spread the word about this information. So if there is any particular edition of this podcast or this broadcast that you'd like to let other people know about, please do so. Please email these links around. Please use the resources and the primary documents that I cite and, uh, in, and link to in all of my work as the resource that it is. And I hope you will find some of this information valuable and valuable enough to share with others because that is the way that we will ultimately get get any of this out through the, uh, the mainstream media blockade and even the uh, establishment alternative media blockade. Because unfortunately, those uh, those foundation-funded alternative media outlets that pretend to be alternative really aren't alternative at all. And it is truly up to people like you and me. And uh, that's somewhat scary, because trust me, I'm no special person. And I'm uh, probably not the best person to be doing this type of media. But while it's here, and while the opportunity is here in the free and open internet, I'm going to be making absolutely the most of it. And so I would like to stress once again that what I'm doing is nothing special. And I think that anyone out there who's listening to my voice, uh, if you're listening to me right now, you can probably do this. And you can probably do it better than I do. So I will once again suggest and encourage and exhort and, uh, and ask anyone out there who's thinking about getting into doing this type of thing, starting a blog, starting an email list, whatever it is. I suggest you do so and add your voice to the mix because we are growing in numbers. We are starting to change the uh, the mainstream uh, discourse. And the question is, is it enough? And is it happening fast enough? Because we are heading into some very dark times, my friends, very dark times indeed, economically, financially, and in many other respects, societally uh, overall. So I hope that you'll join me in this uh, alternative media quest to spread the truth to others and if you are interested in next week's programming here on the corbett report my podcast episode is going to be a very interesting episode i think on secret weapons technology and then on the radio broadcast uh, monday night we're going to be talking to carrie lutz of financial survival network tuesday we're going to be talking to niall bowie of niallbowie.blogspot.com And then Wednesday night, we have Michelle Chosodovsky lined up for a conversation about weather manipulation and weather warfare. That should be a very interesting conversation. So I'm looking forward to it, as I hope all of you are out there. And on that note, we are done for another week of broadcasts. So thank you for tuning in for this Friday night edition of the broadcast. And oh yes, how to win your DVD. The very first email I receive through the Corbett Report website at corbettreport.com slash contact, the very first email I receive asking for the free copy of this DVD will get one. So just write in and, uh, and I'll let you know if you win. And if so, I'll get your details and I will ship off this new DVD when it's ready to go. The first batch will be shipping off on Monday so please get your orders in this weekend if you want to be in that first batch. Once again, I couldn't do this without you. Thank you. See you next week.